and um, I just, I've got something really stirring in my heart for our church, so I'm looking forward to sharing that. Um, so a quick review, last time we looked at Philippians 2, and in Philippians 2 we discovered that there is a poem right at the center of, of the, um, the uh, chapter, and it's like this journey in and a journey out, but at the center of the poem is the death of Jesus, and then Paul invites us, he says at the start, that, that we should all have the mind of Christ in our relationships, and then he gives this poem. So in other words, he's saying, if we want to imitate Christ in our relationships, the way that we interact with one another, then we should do it like Jesus. And the way that Jesus does it is that he, he takes, uh, he, he, he uh, chooses to not have the power that he would have. So he, he lays aside his, his power, he lays aside uh, his status, and comes into the earth to serve with humility, and then even to death. And then because of that, he is exalted and gives glory to God. And so, so we're encouraged that in our relationships, actually the way of Jesus is to lay down our power and our privilege and our status, to serve one another with humility, even the death of ourselves. And so this is the way that, that we exalt Jesus uh, in our relationships. So this is, this is where we're coming from. Um, and uh, for those of you that don't know, during the week on a Monday morning, uh, we do a thing called the Squadcast, which is just like a little follow-up podcast. I really encourage you to listen to that. Um, we just unpack things a little bit more. If there's some questions, we'll unpack those. Um, but last time we did it on um, disagreeing without disconnecting. Disagreeing without disconnecting. And it was, it was actually a really good Squadcast, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, yeah, so uh, again, if you've got any questions this morning, there'll be a number on the screen, you can flick them through, and if we have time this morning, we will answer those, or try to, anyway. Right, so Philippians 3, we, we get the sense that Paul is calling us to, uh, to leave the law, leave religion, and press into Jesus. And uh, so when we think about theology, when we think about this idea of, of studying God, theology means the study of God, um, theology should always be filtered through relationships. And this is the way that Paul is, he's, everything that Paul expounds on in all of his letters, he is, he is filtering it through relationships. How do we represent Jesus to the world around us and how we love one another and care for one another? This is the filter always. He's always talking about unity and us representing the Jesus well as his body together. And so we must um, filter theology through the idea of love and relationships. If we divorce theology from love and relationships, what we get is ideology, right? And ideology can be dangerous. It can be toxic because it discards relationships for ideas, so theology should always be filtered through uh, relationships. Um, so when we look at it, I think it's kind of the difference between believing in something or someone versus knowing someone or something. So believing versus knowing. And I, I want to bring this up as Paul was going to use this word knowing in this chapter. And I want us to unpack it really quickly. So the word knowing uh, in the context that he's used it is the word gnosko uh, in the Greek, which means applied knowledge. And so this is talking about knowledge that is gleaned from first-hand personal experience, right? First-hand personal experience. It's the idea that this type of knowledge is only as accurate, accurate or reliable as the relationship that it comes from, all right? So our understanding of who Jesus is is only as reliable as the person that you know called Jesus, that this is what Paul was getting at, is only through personal experience of knowing Jesus intimately that you can apply 
this kind of knowledge. So it's the difference between believing in Jesus and knowing him. Come on, the Bible says that even the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble with fear. But actually there's this knowing, this intimate relationship with Jesus that Paul was inviting us into uh, in this passage. And so Paul challenges us to consider that everything in this life is actually worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. And he goes on to say that, that, that he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may gnosko him, that I may know him intimately through experience and knowledge, that I may know him through intimate personal experience. And so Paul later talks about this idea that God has laid hold of him and we're gonna, I really wanna pray for some people this morning that maybe you feel like, I don't know if God has laid hold of me yet. And we're gonna unpack that a little bit. Anyway, in verse one, uh, Paul starts with this word finally. So uh, in chapter two, he started with therefore, so that we know that the chapter before is the context for this chapter. This, this one he cha- starts with finally, which is just a great preacher's word, eh? Here's my final point, and it's right in the middle of the whole sermon. Uh, and it just, just keeps you a little bit, you know, I'm just going, this is my last point, and everyone's going, oh, I'll just listen to this last point, and I carry on for half an hour. Um, so Paul starts with finally. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right, so what's Paul saying here about who are the evildoers that Paul is, is pointing out here? He's not actually looking outside the church. He's looking inside the church here. Look out for the evildoers, the ones who are calling you to religious acts in order to get right with God. See, he's talking about the mutilators of the flesh. So there were, there were people within the church uh, that were saying, because uh, the Jews would do a thing called circumcision, which meant that they were part of the chosen people. Uh, and I, do I need to explain what circumcision is? <laughs> Chris, can you explain to Abby what circumcision is? That'd be great. <laughs> no, you're not having the mic. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they're saying that you need to be circumcised to be, actually be a follower of Jesus. And so what they're doing is calling uh, Christians who aren't Jews to follow Jewish customs to become Christians. Anyway, so Paul, Paul gets really aggro about this. In fact, in Galatians, he says, I wish they would go and mutilate themselves. Like, it, like it's something that he, he just he really doesn't like that is happening in the church. So anyway, he, he goes on to say that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, he's saying we put no confidence in our religious acts to get right with God. And he says, in fact, we are the circumcision. We are already the set-apart people. We already are the set apart for, on behalf of, for the benefit of our community, our world, our cities, our nation. We are the set apart people, not because of a religious act, but because of the circumcision of our hearts. He goes on to say that though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to rattle off all of his achievements in life. And this is Paul pretty much saying, hey, look, if we want to have a who's the best Christian competition, I win hands down. Like I have been the best, the best of the best. I was the Jew of all Jews. And then he goes on to say, and I consider it worthless. Worthless. 
See, Paul is encouraging us to consider the difference between uh, our confidence in what we do in our flesh versus the confidence of just knowing him. See, Paul puts gnosko at the top, a knowing relationship with Jesus at the very center of his faith. And he goes on to say in verse seven and eight, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, Paul was doing something quite strange here and quite counter to what we might think. Um, You know, I think we would probably, most of us here would uh, understand that an important part of our response to the gospel, our response to the good news of Jesus is repentance. It's It's a turning away from our sinful way of thinking turning away from our sinful way of believing. But Paul here is actually not just disowning his sinful, sinfulness, he is disowning his righteousness. Have, have you ever considered, Paul, Paul is not just saying, I'm turning away from, from my faulty way of thinking. He is actually saying, I'm turning away from everything that was good as well. Everything that I have done in my own effort to get right with God, I'm turning away from that as well. I consider all of it worthless. Have you ever considered that repentance is not just about what we have done wrong, but maybe things that we have done good? Things that we think have helped us somehow achieve rightness with God in our own effort. Now Paul is saying, turn away from those things. He's disowning not only his sinfulness, but his righteousness. And he is acknowledging that even the very best parts of humanity are nothing compared to the greatness of knowing, knowing Christ. Even his best behavior is nothing to boast about. And this is why we can say that everyone is equal. There is nothing that you have done that disqualifies you from the grace of God and there is nothing that you have done or or who you are that puts you in a higher position than anyone else. This is beautiful. It means that every single person comes to the cross as equals. No one has done anything better to make themselves more righteous or more better in the eyes of God. We come to the cross as equals. This is beautiful. He goes on to say, not that I have already attained, or just to sort of jump in, like when we talk about sexuality, this is gonna be important, a really important point. You might get what I mean. Anyway, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. See, see, one commentator said that Paul wrote from such spiritual maturity and purity that we might expect he believed that he had conquered all spiritual difficulties and saw himself as having arrived at near perfection. Yet he assured us that this was not so. There was no perfectionism in Paul. See, see, it's spiritual maturity that keeps us low. It's spiritual immaturity that raises ourselves. But he says, but I press on. See, because Paul realized that he had not arrived, there was only one option for him. He had to press on. There was no turning back for him. Um, When um, when Spain uh, led the world in the 15th century, uh, they had coins um, that pretty much just reflected their national arrogance. Uh, But it was inscribed on the coins, ni plus, ultra, which means nothing further. In other, in other words, nothing. we've done everything that there is in this world. We have conquered the world, nothing further. 
Uh, and that was basically, you know, meaning that Spain was the ultimate in all the world. Uh, but after the discovery of the New World, uh, they realized that, uh, that Spain wasn't the end of the world, so Spain changed the inscription on the coins to plus ultra, which means more beyond. And I think sometimes we can kind of maybe live Christian lives that kind of say nothing further. And then others live with the sense of there's more beyond. There's more of him to know. There's more of him. I don't know about you, but I've discovered that the closer I get to him, the more I realize how big he is and how small I am. On the kingdom is opposite to everything else. You know, in, in our in our you know, in our bodies when we're hungry we, we eat and then when we eat enough we're full. But in the kingdom when we eat of him, the more hungry we get. Come on, the more you eat, the more hungry you are. There was the more you eat, the more you realise how good he is. And the more you want. See, this is where childlike faith meets maturity. And because, you know, a child uh, can't wait to be bigger and always wants to be more mature. And, and so, this idea of, of us having arrived is actually a sign of immaturity. See, the enemy of becoming, we talked about this in our last series, the enemy of becoming is thinking we have arrived. Paul says that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. And I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about um, rugby and, uh, you know, how, how there's this sense that, that, that when we lay hold of someone, you know, when we tackle someone, like the idea is to not just lay hold of them, but to bring them down. Like it's a full-on, like, full embrace, a tackle, a bringing down. And it's, uh, uh, you know, Jesus, it's almost like Jesus tackles us to the ground on the cross. You know, like he fully takes us down on the cross. And, and I, I don't know about you, but the, cro- the cross is the most disruptive thing that has ever happened to me. It's the most disruptive thing. I mean, you think about, uh, about um, Simon of Cyrene who, who is walking along the road with his two children and there's Jesus walking with the cross. It has, that whole situation had nothing to do with him, but, but the Roman soldier points at him and says, Simon, you carry the cross. That, that would have been the most disruptive thing that ever happened. And, and you, you can read about him and his two children later on in Acts. This family, it's like they carried the cross of Jesus and their lives were never the same again. So the, the, the cross is the most disruptive thing in our lives. It's the thing that lays hold of us. And Paul is saying, that's not enough for me that Christ would just lay hold of me, but I wanna lay hold of that for which he has laid hold of me. See, this is not a passive idea. It's not a, well, Jesus got hold of me, so that's it now. I'm a Christian. I'll go to heaven when I die. You know, like, no, no. See, Paul showed a completely different attitude. He was determined to lay hold of him, lay hold of Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 17, he, he uses this idea of imitating him, and, and it's a fairly well-known verse where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and so what, what was Paul's example? What was he calling us to imitate? I, I think he was calling us to imitate the sense of pressing in and laying hold of Christ. 
the, this, this idea that we never actually arrive. Like we just sung a song that the, 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 the arrival is not the end game. The journey is where it's at. Like, like I, I believe that, that how we travel as a, as a people is more important than the destination. But, you know, we could have all sorts of goals, you know, but what if, our, what if we reached our goals but never looked like Jesus on the way? We've missed the point entirely. The point is to look like Jesus. See, Paul was encouraging the church to imitate his posture of humility, teachability, his posture of continual growth and becoming more like Christ. And so there is the sense that Paul was, he's really confident. I don't know if you've noticed, but Paul was a confident guy. He's confident, but his confidence is not in the flesh. It's not in his achievements. It's not in his behavior. No, his confidence is actually in his posture. His confidence is in his posture of humility. That is where his confidence comes from. Remember, this is the guy who said that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So his confidence is actually in his low position, knowing that in his position of lowness and humility, God gives him empowering grace. That's where his confidence is. And and so I kind of made an observation as I've been reading Philippians. Um, And my observation is this, is that that Paul seems to have this this such a low position that appears lots is actually going over his head. He's so low that lots is going over his head. Notice in in chapter one that it seems like Paul is is indifferent. The word I would use is he is indifferent. He's not ignorant, but he's indifferent. See, Paul is, uh, um, so he's, in chapter one we saw he's totally aware that people are using his imprisonment for their own selfish motives and agendas. But But what's his response? You know, people are using me. They're using my imprisonment to further themselves. And he goes, what does it matter? What does it matter? As long as Christ has been preached, that's all I care about. What does it matter? See, the lower you are, the more goes over your head. The higher you are in your own sense of self, everything is an issue. Everything's a problem to be solved. We need to put everyone and everything in its right place. So, but this is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. In verse 15, now this is a really interesting verse. Another example where Paul was, I think, indifferent, not ignorant, but indifferent. Verse 15, he says, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. I've often heard uh, when there's a disagreement, maybe about a, a Bible passage or something between two believers, uh, sometimes we can uh, maybe end the disagreement uh, with something like this. Well, the Holy, Holy Spirit told me. In other words, I hear the Holy Spirit more than you. Or I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. And that's actually what Paul's saying, isn't it? Here, but he has a but. So Paul says, hey, everyone that's spiritually mature, we should arrive at agreement on this. Uh, And then he says, um, 
basically, I'm, but I'm going to pray. If you disagree, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. But let us hold together to which we have agreed on so far. In other words, looks like we disagree on this, but let's find where we agree and move forward together because unity is more important. This relationship is more important than me being right. I'm gonna pray, but let's, let's move forward with what we've agreed on so far. See, this is, this is maturity. I, I, I've been challenging myself lately to just, um, uh, you know, if someone has a different thought than me, just to be like, oh, that's great, you have a different, different thought. <laughs> and then just leave it. Imagine that on Facebook or social media, just going, wow, I love that you have a different perspective. Bless you. I have the little, you know, on Facebook, the little hands. I just go, bless you. Come on, so last night, I'm, I'm lying in, not last night, the other night, I'm lying in bed and I'm just going, God, what does maturity look like? What does spiritual maturity look like? If this is the thing that we're attaining, if this is a thing that we're pressing into, if this is the thing that you want us to look like, you know, Ephesians 4, we see that we've got the fivefold equipping for a particular reason, for maturity, for unity, for oneness together. If Jesus said, my prayer is that they would be one. Come on, shouldn't that be like our main goal, that we would get Jesus what he prayed for? So, praying, what does maturity look like? The word that I got was this, steadiness. Steadiness. Not a steadiness grounded in self, but grounded in Jesus, a sure foundation. You know, a foundation with Jesus as the cornerstone. It's been unwavered, unshaken, unoffendable. Why? Because we have received a kingdom that is unshakable. I started to think, what makes us shakable? What makes us wavered? What makes us offendable? I mean, at the core of it is fear, isn't it? And I think at the core of, of all fear, or most fear anyway, would be the fear of rejection. I started to think about this, and um, as some of you know, I've been writing a book for too long, yeah. I'll finish it up, brothers. Uh, but in that, in the book, I talk a lot about the fear of rejection, and I realise that when we have a fear of rejection, we are we are shakable for one reason, because when we have a fear of rejection, we never plant deep roots. Why do we never plant deep roots? Because we are always on the edge of disconnection. One word will cause us to be disconnected. One disagreement will cause us to be disconnected. One offense and we're disconnected. We're always on the edge of disconnection. And the MO is actually to reject others before they 
before we get rejected ourselves. And so this is the core fear um, of the older brother in the parable of Luke 15. And I just want to read a little bit from my book, if that's okay. It's just a little passage. Now, I talk about the environment of the older brother, and I said this, I've observed that the older brother has two faces, self-righteousness or self-loathing, and in some cases a mixture of both depending on the situation or the honesty. But at its core, the environment of the older brother is cultivated by separation and a lack of love and a very real presence of fear. The underlying presupposition is that if I show everyone the real me, I will be rejected. It's followed by the feelings of, and I am on my own in this. I need to make myself right in order to be accepted, loved, and valued. This is self-righteousness. Yet the free gift of righteousness from the Father is the restoration of the truest you. No more hiding and striving. You are free to be the real, recreated you. The environment of the older brother is managed and controlled. Manipulation, fear, shame, and the drawing of legalistic lines defines the environment. True freedom is feared because freedom can't be controlled. Yet this is clearly not the environment that is the, this good father that this good father has cultivated. Both sons, especially the younger, were free to explore and rebel, and this father didn't chase after them or try to control them. The father operates on a permission and responsibility paradigm, but the goal of the older brother is to create a safe, controlled, and managed environment. Although the older brother desires freedom and may even adamantly declare they are free, the environment they cultivate suggests the opposite to be true. They have believed their own lie of self-deception. So what happens when we live in this sort of environment or we're cultivating this sort of environment, it can lead to quite an intense way of living. Problems to be sorted, people to be fixed, people to be managed, but little honesty about our own worlds. But maturity, when we're coming into a place of maturity, there is an ever-increasing sense of calm and peace. Little affects them. They are humble, gracious, steady, and sure kind of people. Last week, Ali mentioned um, Isaiah Isaiah 61, and she read from that. And um, at the end of that passage, it talks about a people who will become oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, oaks of righteousness. See, this is what God wants for his people, that we would become oaks of righteousness, Trees that people can find shade under. But who knows that you cannot find shade under a tree that is about to uproot itself. So if we're calling people to say, come, experience the goodness of God. Let us show you how good he is. Let me provide shade while you find him. We cannot do that if our roots are not deep. See, maturity has deep, deep roots. Um, oh, we're getting on in time, aren't we? It's all right. Do I want to read this? Yes, I do. Okay, I, I just want to read a little bit from our Belong booklet. Um, it's a quote from Charlotte Gamble, but it's just such a great quote and just really applies to this. Uh, maybe I just want you to take a moment just to close your eyes and just, just think about the words, just get distractions out. She said this, Sometimes we can think we have planted, but we have actually just settled. 
Settling does not yield the same results as planting. Settling may look similar on the surface, but it's entirely different if you look a little deeper. So the question is, where has settling replaced planting? Settling is when we stay, rest, even unpack our lives for a while, yet planting is where we dig, build, and sink our seed into the ground. Settling is where we are located, but not necessarily connected. Settling is where we are comfortable and yet not accountable. Settling is often where we receive from the other's fruit more than we contribute. There are places where we may settle for a time, but God's best plan is that you would move from settling to being rooted and established. Here's a really good point. I want you to listen to this one. We cannot get mad at the conditions and the places we settle if we aren't contributing. Settling can subtly lead to spectating and speculating. Yet planting leads to participating and pruning. Through, though settling may serve a purpose for a season to give shelter, we must remember that we are not called to sit in the shade forever, but to grow a life that is fruitful and become shelter and food for others. Planters become providers. Their deep roots bring forth new shoots of life and resource. The beauty of planting is its consistency and productivity, keeping the ground it has worked so hard to gain. It is reliable in the unreliable and fruitful in the struggle. It's steadfast in the storm and the maturity is visible and tangible. So let's not confuse settling and planting. Don't ever think working on your roots are a waste of time. It's actually ensuring you thrive for a long time. Be aware where you are settled or planted in each area of your life, from friendships, work, ministry, to home and family. Both settling and planting are options for each of us, and yet the fruit of each is very different. So make sure you go after the fruit you want for your future by choosing well. So the reality is, when we're a church family, we are all responsible for the environment that we cultivate together. It's not just up to me and Ali. Each of us are carriers. We carry something of significance, something of the kingdom. And, and it, hear this, it is not what you carry that is significant, it is how you carry what you carry that is significant. So we all have gifts. Gifts come and gifts go. Gifts are free, but maturity is costly. See, Paul has this hope that is beyond this current life. It transcends the current life. This is why I think he is able to be so low and let everything go over his head. He has a hope of a resurrection. See, Paul constantly seems to have this in his mind, that the resurrection of the life, that the life of Jesus has laid hold of him. So he's pressing on towards the prize of the upward call. See, the Spirit of God, the life of Jesus through the indwelling Spirit is a taste of what is to come. Right, right now, we get to experience a taste of what is to come. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the Spirit of God is a seal upon us as a taste of what is to come, as a deposit for what is to come. And I think Paul has this, this hope all the time on the resurrection that one day Jesus is coming back and I will be fully resurrected. See, the Holy Spirit is a deposit and so there's the sense that I have been resurrected and tomorrow as I walk more into him, I will be more resurrected and one day I will be fully resurrected. But it's only as we participate in the death 
that we get to participate in the resurrection. It's only as I lay down my power and my confidence in myself, the confidence in the flesh, and take on the humble, servant-hearted attitude of Jesus and, 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 and put aside the self-focused life that I get to participate in the resurrection now and forever. And I don't know about you, but once I tasted, oh, there's nothing else I wanted. Well, once you've tasted of his spirit, is there anything else in this life that is worth that? No, there's not. See, I, I now live by a more profound yes, a more profound yes that gives me uh, the ability to have restraint and say no to the disordered desires of my flesh because someone has laid hold of me. Come on, this is, someone has laid hold of me and now I live with a different perspective. And I live to lay hold of him who has laid hold of me. Yeah. Come on, have you tasted? Have you tasted of this resurrection life? See, he is the prize. Jesus is the prize. Now we think about what happens when we die, you know, like what will happen? How, where are we gonna, you know, like I don't care how we get there or even where it is as long as I'm with him. That's all I care about. He is the prize. He is the prize. Yeah. All right, do we have any questions? Yeah, let's, let's do two questions. And then um, um, Annette's going to come and share around communion, awesome. which is spontaneous. And worship team, you can come back. That'd be cool. All right, so first question, what is circumcision? No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Talk to Chris after. <laughs> uh, so would you say that Paul's desire is for his readers to gain the same confidence and daring to proclaim the gospel without fear? Yeah, so it's Paul's desire for his readers to have the same confidence he has to proclaim the gospel without fear. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, confidence to proclaim the gospel was only one part of it. His confidence is, is, it's not just about being bold, you know, going out and being bold out there. That's important. But he's actually saying his confidence is in his humility. So this is affecting how I relate to one another. Someone can be as bold as brass at declaring the gospel and be horrible in relationships. That's, that's not the point. The point is how do we represent God? That's, in my opinion, quite a, can be a very individualistic perspective. This is just about my confidence for me, me being bold and courageous. No, no, confidence in Christ looks like a body of Christ. Everything that Paul was talking about has to be filtered through relationships. How we relate to one. What, what's Jesus up to? He's restoring all things back to the original identity and purpose. So he is restoring right relatedness with God and right relatedness with one another and right relatedness with creation around us. And so that always has to be the context. So, so while yes, that could be part of it, if we just take that one bit and say, well, I'm bold for Jesus outside, but I, I'm, I'm offensive and being offended, we've missed the point. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, not, not to push that down, but just to say there's, there's a whole lot more there than just that one thing. Yep. That's good. Um, a few questions we might have to tackle on the squadcast. Uh, but here's one. Uh, so when you think you are planting roots, but realizing you're actually just settling, not planting, any tips? Um, yeah, I think, um, I think what we probably don't know that there are some things that we could realise, but we probably don't know until this crisis, really, how deep our roots are. Um, but I th it has to be relational. Um, so how many people do... Uh, I think, I mean, a good one. How many people... Uh, numbers are on my phone. How many people have, uh, have my number? Um, you know, these are relational things that are, I think are just a little indication. Um, but I think it has to do with um, our level of vulnerability... How, so when our, when our roots are deep, our confidence is in, in the community that we're a part of. So we're able to be vulnerable. If our roots are not deep, then we are, we are generally there's a fear, and that fear of rejection, that if I tell someone what's really going on with me, then I will be rejected. And so we know that our roots are deep when that fear is no longer there. I can be honest and open with those around me in my squad, in my small group, wherever, um, because I know I'm not going to be rejected when I'm honest. I think that's how we would know that our roots are deep. Yeah. Yeah. Save the rest for the squadcast? Yeah, let's save the rest for the squadcast because I want to give um, Annette some time. Um, uh, just, just one thing. I just wanted to pray. As we're during worship, we're going to be taking communion, and I know Annette's going to bring, bring something there. But uh, there was a real sense this morning as we prayed um, that God was inviting us. And I would like to suggest God is always inviting us. Um, but a real sense about uh, just a revelation of that this morning. And so I, I want to invite you to come. As we come to the table, um, if you, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, uh, I don't know if I've ever had that sense of God laying a hold of me. Um, when I first came back to Jesus, I went on a journey of about three months trying to find him. And I would just respond to every older call because I'm like, I'm just hungry for him. I know that what I have is not what is talked about in there. And so I would just go after him. I would keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. And, and it was finally at this, this one moment in an altar call, I was at the front, and it's like just God just laid hold of me and just totally turned my world upside down. But I kept coming, keep coming, keep coming. And God, God, I know that I'm, I, you haven't laid hold of me like I've read. I want that, I want that. And so I just invite you to come. I'd love to just pray with you and lay hands on you and... I think there's something that's quite significant about those moments. So, yeah, cool. Any?